the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. If a, a Bible verse such as, oh, I don't know, pick one off the top of my head, God helps those who helps themselves. If that is one of your, your favorite Bible verses, then uh, this segment of the program is going to be of particular interest to you. Uh, you know which uh, apostle uh, wrote that uh, that particular uh, well-known, well-known, uh, often often cited by many believers. God helps those who help themselves. As that's the apostle, apostle Benjamin. Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> now, if all of a sudden you you just put your you, you carefully you didn't hit the brake too hard and you know end up having the guy behind you crash into you, if you're a little troubled to find out that that's not in the Bible but actually something that was said and written by Benjamin Franklin, uh, not whom to best of my knowledge was not an apostle, then uh, there may be some other misinterpretations of other verses that actually are in Scripture that may uh, come as a bit of surprise to you. Biblical illiteracy is one of the biggest issues challenging the church today. And, you know, I think not surprisingly for a lot of folks, they will happen across a verse. And believe me, this is done by lay and the so-called professionals in the pulpit as well. They will happen across a verse that seems to fit the application of the point that they are trying to make. And so they'll use it. Whether or not it's in context, whether or not the application is actually appropriate or historically correct, oftentimes kind of falls by the wayside. Sadly, sometimes this leads to significant erroneous doctrinal teaching and and hurts people, quite frankly. Well, a new book out that talks about this um, and sets apart a, a handful of key scriptures that are some of the most oft misquoted scriptures in in the Bible, um, all contained inside the pages of a new book called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God Word is Misunderstood. And joining us now is Dr. Eric Margerhoff. He is senior pastor at Clearwater Community Church and author of this new book. And uh, Eric, great to have you on the show tonight. Craig, I've never been to San Francisco. I'd love to see it someday. Well, great. Well, we'd love to have you out here. Meanwhile, you're you're out here through the magic of radio. That's right. So when we hear misapplication of some scripture, and, and you know, I, I don't want to give every believer the feeling that they're they're alone in the camp. A lot of folks will hear something like, God helps those who help themselves. 
and think, well, gee, that certainly sounds like it's Bible, uh, when in fact it is not. And then sadly, it, it goes even deeper than that when people tend to sometimes, as you suggest in the book, kind of pick and choose so which scriptures they want or certain scriptures that seem to be appropriate, the kind of stuff that you just kind of pull off the top of your head, slip it into the situation that, quite frankly, more often than not, has nothing to do with the situation at hand. Well, we uh, we have a tendency to look at situations, and we 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 have a scripture verse in our head that just seems to perfectly fit this circumstance, and we try to insert it in there in such a way that is foreign to the original author's intent. And um, and I think that you said it right on the head; you hit the nail on the head, so to speak, um, when you mentioned that this can hurt people. Um, people take things out of context and use it wrongly, even in wrong situations. And you can kind of use this uh, Bible we have as a club in a way that it was not meant to be used, and it dishonors God. And it can tend to lead people astray, too, can't it? I mean, you, we, we see entire doctrines that are sometimes created out of this. I, I am sometimes uh, equally fascinated and appalled by some of these so-called uh, Word of Faith teachers that are popular on television these days, uh, with certainly a subset of, of, of uh, the Christian community, uh, that will sometimes so stretch and distort scriptures and, and, and certain passages, all in an effort to try and prove their point. It's almost as if uh, you know, they, they drew the conclusion then went looking for a scripture to support it instead of it the other way around. Well, this is how the fall of humankind uh, came about, was uh, even in the first chapter of my book, I talk about how the very first quoting of God's word was a misquote from the serpent mm-hmm. in the Garden, Garden of Eden. And so it was a, a slight twist, you know, to what God really did say. And uh, that's how it began. And so that you saw how that path led us down to where we are in a sinful world that we live in today. So this is going to happen quite often in those cults and other types of religions that are going to construct a system, a humanistic system, mind you, based on verses that they pulled out of context, subtracted from, added to, you know, you can just do all kinds of damage that way, and I even refer to how Hitler used scripture uh, back in his day to paint a picture of the whole Jewish race uh, as a brood of vipers. Of course, we know Jesus was talking directly to the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day that were corrupt, but yet Hitler robbed that out of its context and applied it to the entire Jewish people. Which, and you can see where that led us. We know that there are certainly those examples of, of extremes, and, sure. and oftentimes uh, taken out of content with absolute ill intent from the very get-go. I mean, I, we can certainly argue that the serpent in the garden, in the whole hath God said questioning, uh, certainly went into this out of ill intent. But within the broader Christian community to these days, how much of this really is perhaps less about intentionally distorting Scripture as opposed to maybe kind of being of the stuff that, uh, for want of a better maybe uh, example, uh, a doctor would be like an urban legend. In other words, where certain passages get so often misquoted that it kind of becomes now a part of the new Christian lexicon, and we don't really realize that, you know, our favorite verse that we think means this, in fact, all along has never meant that. Well, yeah, for example, like where two or three are gathered, you know, we often hear that at prayer meetings, but that's actually about the context of church discipline in Matthew 18. 
and it's God's promise to be with them when the church has to take a judicial decision about sin. And so when we look at that closer in its context, wow, it really enlightens us. But I want to just go back to what you said at the very beginning of that uh, last statement there, is that I believe that, that all of us at times um, have unwittingly, unknowingly perhaps, without any ill intent at all, have misused Scripture. I know I have. Um, I think that uh, many of us could say that, you know what, we didn't realize that at the time, but that Scripture now means something different than what we originally thought it did. And I think we can do that innocently. But what this book is challenging us to do is to take a really close look at some of our favorite verses and and look to see if indeed we're using them correctly, because if we do use them correctly, number one, it's going to give us a, a right view of God and who He is. It's going to expand our view of God. And then secondly, it's going to just fill us with rich, deep truths that we could apply to our life in a way that, that really brings blessing and life to us. Is part of this, as you've done the research for the book... Uh, is, is there a trend taking place here? In other words, is this simple, some isolated particular passages of Scripture that, as I suggest, have kind of elevated themselves into kind of the, the urban legend within Christendom? Uh, or is there something broader going on here? And I pose that question because we've seen kind of at certain levels within uh, postmodern Christianity, as Francis Schaeffer would suggest, uh, a, a, I think a, a slow trend toward the devolving mm. of of biblical literacy. I mean, we went from, for example, in many pulpits in America, a very firm and uncompromising "God hath said." Then it kind of went into our catechism teaches. To now, a lot of the the feel good preachers, I'll call them, kind of uh, you know conclude with, in my opinion. So it, it, it seems as if there's a, a little bit of a slippery slope. So is, is this part of a bigger issue going on here? Absolutely. I think that we are, are in one of the most biblically illiterate um, cultures that we've had here in America ever since this country has began. And, and I believe that uh, it's important for us to be preaching and teaching the Word of God and not just tickling, itching ears that just want to hear certain things said to them. Um, I think we need to really return back to the idea of solid biblical study, where we actually study this Bible and get into it and unpack it and go through it verse by verse, book by book, and refer to other books as we study and, and kind of do an inductive study method. Other methods are out there, I'm sure. You know, Sitting under expository preaching, I think, is another way of creating a culture in a church where the Word of God is revered and understood and submitted to by God's people. And when you create that kind of culture, boy, you're talking about an altogether different level of depth than what you're seeing in many places today. This is the viewpoint or the approach when it comes to the study and application of Scripture as we see in Second Timothy uh, 2 and following, that we are to rightly divide the word of truth. Sad thing is we don't really know what that means. We're going to talk a bit more about that, even work through a couple of passages that you're going to think, oh, that, that's my life verse. And, Maybe get a whole new take on the matter. Uh, with us today is Dr. Eric Bargerhuff. 
He is the author of a new book called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways That God's Word is Misunderstood. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting tonight with the author and pastor, Dr. Eric Barjahuff. The new book is called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And while the, this particular book certainly walks you through some of the, the big ones out there, obviously anyone can be misquoted, misapplied. And before we get into some examples, Doctor, maybe you can walk us through some of the methodology that is necessary to really fully understand and apply a verse. It's easy to go and pick out a sentence or two and say, aha, this does what I want it to do. And if we did that, we could make the Bible say anything we wanted to in that regard. But, of course, that's not God's intent. Uh, talk to us a bit about uh, what contextualization means and how to go about, as Second uh, Timothy 2 suggests, rightly divide the word of truth. Well, the first thing I do, Craig, is I take an approach that looks at Scripture on the surface at face value. I kind of look at it and say, okay, what is being said here? What is being communicated? I, I kind of take a literal approach to Scripture in that way, unless it's obvious that the, the passage is speaking figuratively or metaphorically, like um, you know, going through the eye of a needle, so to speak. Um, but what I really do is look before and after the scripture and see what the paragraph is about, what the uh, whole particular chapter of, that this is found in is talking about, what are the themes that are emerging out of that. I look at the book as a whole, and this is where even a great study Bible would be of, of great help to, to anyone who wants to interpret scripture correctly. There's lots of wonderful information there about the author of the book, the original audience to which it was intended, some of the major theological themes that come out, maybe even some of the interpretive problems are even suggested there at the beginning of the introduction of each book. And and you can get a bigger picture of what's happening here and what are the political climate that the writing was in, what's the social customs that were a part of the day in which the uh, the uh, original hearers were a part of. So you can use these tools that you don't have to be a, a PhD or a scholar or, or even a pastor to be able to discern what the Bible's talking about as you study it here. But those things are very key and important. As you look at each particular passage of Scripture, you have to look at what comes behind and before and around it so that you get an idea of what's being discussed at the time that you come across that passage. And that probably, in and of itself, is one of the most easiest and yet most critical uh, tools that are available at our disposal. Because I know some people say, well, gee, I'm, I'm trying to consume or spend as much time in the Word as I can per day, but my goodness, I go out and get a, a study Bible. In fact, I've got one sitting here in the studio. I won't, I won't say what brand it is, but it is fashioned in such a manner, Eric, that the, the top half are the passages, and then the, the bottom half of each page in a, in, in a font type that's half the size of, of the scriptural print, it's all the footnotes. And boy, by the time you work through all this, my goodness, you know, I, it, it would take a month of Sundays just to absorb a verse or two on that basis. But if you simply help to put things in context by looking several verses behind particular passage that you're, you're studying or looking at and following, that can help a lot to contextualize things, can't it? Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's how we should interpret the Scripture rightly. And, and, 
it's it's no different than overhearing a conversation at the mall. You know, if you just hear one sentence that someone said over at the drinking fountain, you may not have the whole course, the whole conversation that had happened throughout the course of their walking through the stores or discussing things. The same is true. I mean, it's a crude example, but it's the same idea when you come to the Scripture. You've got to listen to the entire conversation. In that sense, I would suggest even reading through the entire Bible to kind of figure out what are the main themes of Scripture, you know, the creation, redemption that comes as a result of the fall and God's plan of choosing a people for himself and and then the promise of the Messiah. So taking even a whole Bible approach helps us get a big picture. There's one other thing that I would like to add to interpreting things rightly is also understanding what's called genre or a literary form. Uh, One of the things that I even write about in this book is understanding the nature of a proverb. That a proverb is not necessarily an absolute promise. For example, the train up a child in the way you should go passage. Um, It's not an absolute promise, but they're general principles based on experience and observation over a period of time. And so understanding the nature of a proverb will help you interpret what this proverb is saying and how you should properly apply it to your life. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, our visit is with Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. The book is called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. Uh, I I almost hesitate, Eric, to head down this road because I know I'm really going to get telephone calls. (laughs) But in terms of particular translations, and we we may even need to delineate for some listeners uh, what we mean by a a translation... uh, (laughs) <laughs> is there any one that is the most accurate? And I know folks have to deal with clarity on one hand, accuracy on another, and there seem to be so many versions of the Bible out there these days that uh, it's hard sometimes to know which one might be the best. Well, you are opening a can of worms there, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I think. I just say, just say it for the record here. I believe sure. in reading the Bible that that Moses wrote and that Paul preached out of, that's and right. that's well. and that's the King James. <laughs> <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it is. It is. Let me just say this: there are many good translations of the Bible, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book as to why we have new translations that come out because language changes and context of how we use language changes and and so it's important for us to understand that it's a legitimate thing to write a new translation of scripture as as different hearers and different audiences i mean we're still wanting to be faithful to the original hebrew and the original greek and aramaic text that the bible was written in but i think for for me one of my personal favorites is one that came out in 2001. Uh, the English Standard Version is one of the translations that I have found to be a good, essentially literal, word-for-word translation that I think is very, very excellent with regard to its faithfulness. I think there are many others, like the New American Standard. Um, I, I, I like I like many different translations. I like to read different translations to see how the translators have have worked through these texts, but I think one of the most accurate is that I'm using, again, this is not to say that this is, has to be this, the, the, the translation for everyone, but the one that I am using now 
almost regularly is the English Standard Version. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. And some of us, I mean, I, I having grown up with the King James... Sure, I did. I'm yeah. comfortable with it, and I'm I am comfortable enough in understanding uh, that version of the English language going back to the 1600s uh, that I don't get tripped up. I know some people do, and therefore maybe uh, not necessarily using the King James, particularly for for new believers or those who don't feel uh, comfortable with the King's English, uh, might be better off. Well, I, I grew up uh, memorizing first out of the King James, and then during my high school and college years, I used the older NIV, the 1984 version, and and it wasn't until recently that I switched over to the ESV. So, you know, everyone has different seasons of life where maybe one translation uh, it better suits them, and depending on their context, their culture, where they're at. But I think there are some translations that are absolutely better than others. There are some translations that I would say maybe have a little bit of a agenda with it, but mm-hmm. in the general sense, I, I think that um, the ones that I first referred to there are pretty healthy. We're going to take a brief time out, come back with some examples as our conversation continues with Dr. Eric Bargerhoff for the book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. And as we do so, you know, the, the Bible tells us that, for example, um, it rains on both the just and the unjust. How many of us during circumstances, if we have a friend or a family member who's going through particularly difficult times, whatever that might be, might might give them a word of encouragement, like from Romans 8.28, very popular scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And so we, we, we will quote that scripture as a means of trying to comfort the person who's going through some difficult times. Don't worry, it's all going to work out. All things will work together for good. Uh, Dr. Barger Huff, what's wrong with the application of that under those circumstances? Well, we need to define what it means to say that it's working together for good. Um, because oftentimes... We have inserted our own preconceived idea of what we think good should look like for our own life. And, of course, that involves you know, financial wealth, prosperity, financial health, um, and even physical health as well. And so I think at times we need to understand that that verse it needs to be understood within its very next sentence in the, in the Scripture, verse 29, not just Romans 8.28, but Romans 8.29, which says that for those God, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, which is the greatest good for us, is that we become more like Jesus Christ. So what that means then is that God is using great triumphs and even these tragedies that we go through in this fallen world, and he sovereignly weaves them together in a way whereby he can receive the glory in our life, where we become more like Jesus Christ in our character and in our actions. And that is truly the good that God intends for us. And so it's not a humanistically defined understanding of good. It must be a spiritually rich, robust, theologically sound definition of good 
that is pleasing and perfect to God in accordance with His will. And there's really two two portions of that scripture, too, aren't there? We we have the for those who love God and work together for good. So just to try to toss it out there to suggest that for anybody who's going for difficult times, don't worry, it's all going to work out. Which I think we we typically interpret to mean our way. That's not at all what that passage of scripture is saying, nor to whom it's being said. No, it's, it's actually a promise for believers, so I want to make sure we understand that. For those who, who love God, those who are the called ones according to His purpose. And so that is a very important um, factor that we need to understand when we interpret this verse, is that this is not just for anybody. This is for God's people. But it's, but it's for God's people who are living life on this earth as aliens and strangers in this world, knowing that the greatest good is yet to come. And that's the plan that God has for us in our eternal future with Him. You know, I was thinking the other day, um, just how much we look forward to those new glorified resurrected bodies that we'll have in the new heavens and the new earth as we all get older. We know that these, these, these things are wearing out. And, um, and it makes you long for what's to come. And so we should understand that the greatest good is a future promise, but some of the greatest good that we can experience now is not to be seen in a materialistic, personal agenda way. It's more of what is going to glorify God, which is going to please Him, and what aligns me with His character so I become more like His Son. Now, that, that fundamental foundation throws a bit of a wrench into the monkey works uh, for John 14, 13, 14, which is so off-sided, particularly by those in the Word of Faith camp, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, ask for anything in my name. I, this I will do if the Father may be glorified in the Son. Uh, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And it almost sends, tends to make God sound like this huge cosmic bellhop, in a sense. Yeah, I kind of call it like a genie in a bottle, yeah. where where we just kind of uh, have our agenda, have our laundry list, and we endorse it by putting um, praying in God's name at the end of it. Now, I I believe we need to understand what it means to pray in His name. It's a common phrase that He used quite a bit while He was here on Earth, and of course I trace some of that in the book. And but when the heart of it comes out, I think what we're talking about here is doing something and doing that which is in accordance with God's will, ultimately for His glory. So when we pray in His name, our main priority, our main motive must be, what is it that, Lord, that's going to glorify you the most? And and how can my prayer be shaped in such a way that your agenda and your priorities and your purposes far exceed mine? And so that is how we should begin. And in fact, there's a great book called Praying Backwards, written by Brian Chappelle. He says, essentially, that if we start talking to God with the idea that we're going to pray in His name, and that's how we go into the prayer, it will change the way we pray about the things that we pray about, because mm-hmm. ultimately, we're going to be focused on God and His glory and what's pleasing and perfect to Him. Well, that other passage, you know, um, the the notion that uh, the Lord will give us the desires of our heart, but then God also defines for us where he says our heart needs to be focused. And so it's easy to say, well, I desire, you know, a brand new Cadillac in the driveway and, you know, season tickets to the 49ers, whatever the case might be. But then God talks about blessed is he who, whose mind is set upon the Lord, whose heart is set upon the Lord. 
So if God says he's going to give you the desire of your heart and your heart is set on him, now all of a sudden that, that just changes the feeling of that scripture altogether now, doesn't it? It does. If you're delighting yourself in God, then guess who it is that is shaping the desires of your mm-hmm. heart? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point, I think, is that our delight, our joy, our sense of being and purpose, our sense of identity is found about who we are in Christ abiding in Christ, no matter what our circumstances are. And when that's our goal, and that's our focus, that's our priority, it changes the way we view our world, we view our life, and think about things, so that when we do pray, we're praying according to His will, as First John 5 uh, talks about. And then when we ask according to His will and His name, then we'll receive that which we've asked of Him. Why? Because it's according to His perfect plan. Amen. There's one more I want to have you take a quick uh, swipe at, and and it's one that I have memories of going back into the 1970s, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a dwindling group to be sure, uh, the big Jesus rallies, Jesus 79, Jesus 79, uh, we had these rallies in the the Candlestick Park in San Francisco, marches on Washington, D.C., and it seems, Eric, no matter where you went, you would hear 2 Chronicles 7.14 cited, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will i hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land and and you would get some of these personalities up on stage quote that and then talk about the evil people that need to get their act together and you sinners out there and people in congress and so on and so forth and i always thought Aren't we directing that particular passage at the wrong people? Instead of pointing out toward others, shouldn't we be pointing toward ourselves? Well, true. Uh, This was a message specifically in the Old Testament for God's people, Israel. So, first of all, it is a message primarily for God's people. But it was also for a particular nation, and that was the nation of Israel during the time of the reign of King Solomon, after he dedicated the temple. Um, there was a promise that God gave to him that if there were times where Israel would wander astray and, and, and go off the path, and, and of course we know the history there, they did many a time, um, judgment would come. God would bring judgment upon them and correct them and train them and punish them and, and try to woo them back to living according to his perfect law. and. And as a result of their disobedience throughout their history, God would sometimes bring judgment. And that judgment would come in the form of even a physical judgment that would fall upon the very land of Israel itself. There was drought, there was pestilence, there was all kinds of locusts that eat their crops, and that was part of God's judgment. So here, God is promising Solomon that upon their repentance, he promised them that he would literally physically heal that land that was decimated by all those locusts and droughts and famines and things like that. So it's a specific promise to a specific people at a specific time. But what we tend to do is we kind of hijack it out of that context. We generalize it with regard to any idea of healing our land and then apply it as a promise for spiritual revival for any nation where Christians reside, and that's not particularly the right application. Good idea, but wrong verse. We appreciate you spending some time tonight uh, to help uh, put some uh, new perspective or correct perspective, I might better say, uh, on the whole reading and studying and application of God's Word. The book, it's a page-turner, to be sure, an easy one to read, and one that I hope will uh, will get you set in the right direction when it comes to 
properly studying and applying God's Word. The most misused verses in the Bible, surprising ways God's Word is misunderstood, newly published by Bethany House and available at uh, bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as we're told in 2 Timothy 3 and 16. All Scripture inspired by God, useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what to do, which is right. The key, though, is we have to properly interpret it and apply it. And Eric Barterhoff has done, helped us do a tremendous job of that tonight. Thanks so much. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Something certainly big developed in my life, and it is the bane of every radio announcer in the country, and that is a chronic cough. Long-term listeners to this program will probably remember those days. Certainly my engineer is shaking head yes with his finger dutifully poised over the mute button during that period of time. We'll call what I thought was a season of dealing with post-nasal drip. I'm an allergy sufferer. It's something that's been in the family. So uh, for me, it just seemed to be load up on Mucinex and make sure you take your allergy medication. And surely this will finally go away. Well, days turned into weeks, turned into months. The cough became worse. And I'll never forget my reaction going into my doctor's office describing the symptoms And the next thing the doctor did was hand me a prescription for anti-reflux medication. And I sort of laughed it off and I said, wow, what, me? I don't even suffer from heartburn. This cannot possibly be acid reflux. There's something else going on here. Of course, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I played one on the radio. And of course, the Internet gives us all the answers, right? So I would certainly know more than my physician would, wink, wink. To which my doctor replied, give it a month. If it's still an issue in a month, you call me, we'll take another look at it. Well, within a couple of three weeks, it was clear that my doctor had nailed it right on the head. That as I've gotten older, and as our diets, quite frankly, are not what they used to be, this became a pretty bad problem for me. But is medication necessarily the singular answer to dealing with acid reflux? And if not, what can we be doing to address this issue? Joining me now is celebrated physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman, author of a number of best-selling books, including Dropping Acid, The Reflux Diet Cookbook and Cure, The Chronic Cough Enigma, and her latest book, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. That includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free. Dr. Kaufman is one of the country's leading laryngologists and founder and director of the Voice Institute of New York and serves currently as professor of otolaryngology at the uh, the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai. And Dr. Kaufman, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. And boy, is your story an exemplary one. You know, it just kind of a textbook in that regard, and it was just one of those issues where, uh, I mean, I've suffered with allergies my entire life, and all of a sudden I started noticing this this cough creeping in, and could not have believed that it would have ever been associated with something like acid reflux, but at the end of the day, that certainly seems to be the case. But I, I suppose the big question is this, you know, we're in this society today apt to want to take a pill to fix things that typically addresses symptoms 
but doesn't get to the real causes. So I guess just leading out the gate, perhaps we can use myself as a guinea pig here tonight, Dr. Coffin. Um, is this a case where all of a sudden in my early 50s, my stomach is producing more acid than it should? Or what's really going on here? Well, first of all, reflux simply means backflow. So it's backflow from the stomach. And the idea that people would have heartburn and everybody knows what that looks like on TV. You see somebody who's overeaten, who's uh, burping and clutching his chest or bursting into flames. It turns out that this is actually incorrect. The majority of people who have reflux don't have heartburn. So that, that in itself is, a, is sort of a wake-up call. So, well, wait a minute. If they don't have heartburn or indigestion, uh, the, the next question is, what do they have? So post-nasal drip, chronic throat clearing, a sensation of a lump in the throat, cough, particularly a wet cough when you bring up stuff, um, hoarseness, particularly morning hoarseness, waking up in the middle of the night uh, with coughing and choking, gasping for air like a fish out of water, asthma, uh, allergy symptoms, and even sinus problems. So. It turns out that there are probably 125 million Americans that have reflux, and only about 25 million of those people have heartburn as their major symptoms. That means all these other things are a surprise, and not only are they a surprise to people like you, you, weren't, you were surprised when your doctor said you had silent reflux, but indeed there are also surprises to many physicians, so credit and kudos to your physician for getting it right. Now let's talk about exactly what's going on here. Uh, when we talk about acid reflux, and you referred to it just a moment ago, doctor, as silent reflux, what is the difference between that and traditional, quote-unquote, heartburn? Well, it, it, you know, if you think about it, I don't know how old you are, but I mean, I'm pushing 70. So when I grew up, my mother put dinner on the table at 6 o'clock. You, you could set your clock by her. And uh, the, everything was local. The, the chickens came from a local person. Um, all the vegetables came locally. We did not go out to eat very often. Maybe uh, once a month we'd go to a steakhouse or for a restaurant. And um, uh, uh, there was no fast food. People weren't drinking soda pop all day. So in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, the reflux epidemic, the asthma epidemic, the sleep apnea epidemic, and a whole host of other medical problems that have exploded are actually all related, and mostly they have to do with how our diets and our lifestyles have changed. We eat later, we eat worse, we eat chemicals, we eat acids, and so on. Uh, if you asked me, however, what silent reflux is, Silent reflux is reflux that occurs at night while you're asleep. So you don't have heartburn. Maybe you don't wake up. But it causes all kinds of mischief, including in the sinuses and the nose and the throat. And then when you wake up in the morning, you have sinus, nose, and throat symptoms. So silent reflux is predominantly nighttime reflux. And it usually occurs with people 
who eat late, who eat too much in the evening, who don't have much breakfast or lunch, and who eat not very healthy foods. I have to wonder too, doctor, in, in terms of the impact. I mean, in my case, it was clearly irritating the back of my throat. And the minute that we addressed it over a short period of time, suddenly this chronic hacking cough went away. But I have to wonder, too, I mean, acid, uh, I've got to imagine for certain parts of the esophagus and upper throat area can't be good. I mean, the stomach is designed to have acid and, and acid serves a very important function, doesn't it? It's just when it gets to the wrong places that it becomes problematic. Well, you're absolutely correct. Not only is, is it not belong in the throat, when you look at the lining membranes of, say, the vocal cords, those membranes are a thousand times more sensitive to acid than the esophagus. The esophagus is the swallowing tube that joins the throat and the stomach. In other words, that esophagus is pretty tough. It's designed for it. Even normal people who don't have reflux disease will have some reflux some of the time after some meals. But once it gets up into the throat, by the way, we've come up with a new term called respiratory reflux. And the reason this term came about was to alert people to the idea that any respiratory symptom, in respiratory is nose, throat, voice box, bronchial tubes, lungs, the whole respiratory tract, any part of that lining is very sensitive to acid, very sensitive to digestive enzymes. And so we see these people who have been misdiagnosed or or uncertain of what's going on, all turn out to have reflux. It's about, oh, I don't know, 90% of people who have a wet cough, uh, which is an awful lot of people. Chronic cough is, is one of the most common symptoms for which a person sees a doctor. Now, I have to wonder, in relationship to the impact that that acid reflux can have um, on some of those <clears throat> more sensitive tissues, does this also put, it at an, put us at an increased risk for certain types of cancer? It does. In my opinion, uh, you can get cancer without smoking, but not without reflux. And we're talking about esophageal cancer and lung cancer, throat cancer, and even mouth cancer. There's a lot of work that's been done on reflux, looking at the relationships between cancer and reflux. And reflux seems to be a big, big factor. Uh, we know for sure that a cancer of the esophagus which is reflux caused, there's not much question about that, is the fastest growing cancer in America in terms of its incidence, up about 800% since 1970. So that's a big change, an eight, eight-fold increase in esophageal cancer. So we know that there's a relationship with cancer, but, but just as important is the relationship with asthma, with COPD, with cough, with all kinds of respiratory problems. And I think that if you look across the population, um, less than 1% or 2% are at risk for developing cancer, but a whole bunch of people are at risk for developing all these other things. By the way, including sleep disturbances and sleep apnea and snoring. They're all related in many cases, not all, but they're often related to reflux. And, of course, it, all of this begs the big question. If this wasn't an issue that was so widespread a generation or two ago, what's changed? Well, Dr. Kaufman hinted a moment ago to what's changed. Our lifestyles have changed. Our diets have changed. And we're taking perhaps the incorrect path to address all of this. 
Well, certainly it's great that uh, certain types of medications have been developed, including these proton pump inhibitors that can reduce the impact of acid reflux on uh, sufferers. Is it necessarily the only way to go when it comes to addressing this issue? We're going to get to that part of the equation as we continue our conversation today. We are uh, delighted to have celebrated author with us and physician, Dr. Jamie Kaufman. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet, Uh, this on the heels of a couple of other bestsellers on the topic, Dropping Acid, the Reflux Diet Cookbook, and the Chronic Cough Enigma. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 